very much, Hannah, <clears throat> and thank you, Sona, and thank you to Educate Plus, uh, and thank you all for being online this morning for this presentation. Um, so this uh, session is going to take um, two main parts. In the first part, I'm actually going to talk about developing your case for support, which is the critical foundation for all of your fundraising communications. Uh, and then in the second part of the presentation, we'll look more operationally at um, annual appeal communications, because I know that many of you are working on your planning for that at the moment. And Dana is going to share her um, case study about her um, uh, a recent annual appeal. Um, and we're also going to address uh, the questions that a number of you sent through prior to the session. Thank you so much for sending those through. Some of those questions will be addressed during the session um, and some will we'll leave till we get to the question part at the end. Um, so now I'm going to share my screen, hopefully. Okay. Okay, so first of all, what is uh, your case for support and why do you need one? So fundamental to all of your fundraising communications is your case for support. And this is essentially your donor prospectus. It's the argument that you put forward articulating one, what your inst institution's priority needs are, uh, two, why donors should give to your institution to support those needs, and thirdly, why they should do so right now. Uh, a case for support is a comprehensive compendium, essentially, of all of your most persuasive arguments and key messaging, which presents holistically the rationale and the justification for you to ask. And it becomes a resource that, then, that you can then use as the basis for every single type of communication that you might need across the spectrum of your fundraising programs. So whether that's major gifts or your bequest program, uh, your annual giving program, uh, or specifically for campaigns. Oops. And the different types of the communications that you might adapt your case for support for, for uh, brochures, um, letters that you send out with your appeal, emails that you send out with your appeal, your web content, um, your social media campaigns, videos, speech notes, briefing notes that you provide to your uh, leadership and your volunteers who are working with prospective donors and in your actual donor proposals and donor conversations. Okay, so then once you have your comprehensive case for support, you will actually take blocks of content from the full case to recreate your case at different levels for specific projects, audiences, and different types of media. So for example, you might have three or four different funding uh, projects that you're working on, and each of these will have multiple angles of approach. They have different levels of appeal for different audiences, whether that's uh, your parents or your alumni, uh, your current staff, your former staff, uh, or industry that you're hoping to engage. So your case for support should provide all the content that enables you to readily present the right argument for the right project to the right audience at the right time. And this ensures that you will have consistent, powerful messaging reinforced across all of your target audiences and communications channels. 
uh, it helps ensure that everyone in your institution is actually singing from the same song sheet, that they all understand the priority fundraising needs of your institution, that they know why those priority needs are important, and they know what the plan is for execution for those priority needs. So this really empowers your staff and volunteers to recognise opportunities if they're having chance conversations with stakeholders uh, and they're able to have meaningful engagement in those circumstances. Perhaps even more importantly, the development of your case actually helps you ident identify where there are gaps in your strategy for engaging donors. Um, so often we dive into writing our appeal communications or our bequest brochure without actually having gone through the rigour of developing a comprehensive case for support. Uh, but applying that rigour will make your arguments so much more powerful and effective in every sense. Um, because the process of developing your case actually asks you to think about every question that your prospective donor might have. So the two key things that a good case for support must do is it must answer all questions a prospective donor might have uh, and it must move and inspire them to give at the highest levels of which they are capable. As with any uh, good story that leaves its reader spellbound, um, there is a hidden formula and rules for achieving an effective, an effective case for support. So to most people, a good novel is seamless in its exposition, but it is in fact crafted with meticulous precision and attention to structure, which most readers of which most readers are happily oblivious. Similarly, with your case for support, there are frameworks that should be consistently employed to achieve your desired result. Your institution, your priority funding needs and your plans may be unique, uh, but the way in which you articulate these has a tried and true formula for exacting maximum impact in philanthropic revenue. And when beginning, it's helpful to keep in mind two things that connect very powerfully with this analogy. First of all, that all giving decisions are based in deep emotion. Uh, neuroscientists conducting MRI scans of people making decisions about whether or not to give to charity show that this actually activates the same regions of the brain involved in processing rewards. We also know that oxytocin levels, the warm and fuzzy hormone, predict just how much empathy your prospective donor or your reader will have for your cause. Uh, and story uh, has similarly been lighting up the human brain since the dawn of time. Um, and this is a great quote from uh, the strange thing that happens in your brain when you hear a good story. Something surprising happens when information comes from a story rather than just simple facts. More of our brains light up. When we hear a story, our neural activity increases fivefold, like a switchboard has suddenly illuminated the city of our mind. So when we read a story, or when we read a good book, uh, it, it also releases a heady mix of hormones. We've got cortisol, the fight or flight um, response, which uh, creates alertness and attention, oxytocin for relationship building, social bonding and trust, um, and dopamine, which keeps us engaged, focused, and helps with retaining information. Uh, and of course, endorphins, which uh, relate to the feel-good factors of a story associated with a sense of pleasure and satisfaction. 
through your narrative and your case for support, you are essentially um, taking your reader on an emotional journey, a narrative arc through crisis, challenges, obstacles, to a resolution and denouement where they get to be the hero who delivers your happy ending. Uh, in fact, it's just like a pick a path adventure. Uh, through your narrative, you extend the invitation to your hero donor to be to help solve your big problem, creating new frontiers in knowledge and experience. This narrative arc in your case for support should be replicated in every type of communication that you create from it, whether that's a 20 page brochure or a 30 second video, ideally you will take your prospective donor on this emotional journey. So how do you create this narrative arc and satisfy an emotional journey with a fundraising case? The following basic structure will help you. So these in, in this order, these are the main uh, sections that you will have in your case for support. The introduction, identification of the problem, identification of the solution, why us, why now, investment needed, benefits to the donor, and the conclusion. So if we map this against Stephen James' essential ingredients of story, it would look something like this. So in the uh, story concept, we have orientation, setting the scene, the mood and the tone of the story, uh, mapped against problem, we would have the crisis um, that the hero is encountering, solution um, maps to the plan to overcome the crisis, why us? This would be the equivalent of the wise guide and counsel in the story. So that's your institution helping the protagonist on their journey to be the hero at the end. Why now is your escalation of tension, raising the stakes for the protagonist. Invest needed. This is the point of discovery where your protagonist makes a life-changing discovery about how they can actually help you resolve your problem and solve the crisis. Uh, and then benefits to the donor is the trans transformational change when the hero donor uh, or the protagonist achieves transformation and helps you solve the problem. Uh, when I develop a case for support, I find it very helpful to keep these headings as a framework so that I always remember which section I'm writing. Um, this is a plotting device that helps you strengthen the content of each part while maintaining the flow of that narrative arc. Um, for your final published versions of um, your different types of communication, obviously you would remove these headings and replace them with titles that are more impactful and attention grabbing. Okay, so essentially the introduction, and I usually write the introduction last uh, so that I can tie together all of the bits that I've um, been working on. But the introduction is where you briefly set the scene for what is to follow, talking about the big problem you're about to present to the reader. You might do this with a generalization about your big problem, or you might do it with a very specific story that perfectly illustrates the big problem. But either way, you want to grab them by the pants straight away uh, with urgency and energy. Um, and your key objective with your introduction is to excite your reader's appetite to read on. Okay, for the second section, identifying the problem. Uh, this is the section where you're going to go into all of the detail about every angle of this issue. Uh, and this is an area where institutions often make a critical error because they may gloss over or leave out altogether the actual big picture of the problem they're seeking to address and only look at it at a micro level. 
So for example, you might identify your problem as needing new science and technology classrooms to replace outdated spaces, or you might be seeking bursaries to support disadvantaged students, but the classrooms and the bursaries in themselves aren't actually the problem, they're part of your solution to the problem. So in order to help your prospective donor really understand the problem you're inviting them to solve, uh, and to feel the tension of that, you need to be able to paint the big picture. So if we look at the example of STEM education resources, if we were to look at the big picture of that, um, obviously it's a very topical uh, uh, discussion at the moment, but our big picture might comprise content along the following lines. We might talk about the digitization and the rapidly changing world of work for school leavers and new university graduates. Um, the, the, crushing 20-year impact of the global financial crisis and COVID-19 on employment opportunities and future life choices for young Australians and the fact that we need to prepare them for that. Um, the challenges to rural and regional students, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students uh, and girls for accessing top quality STEM education and having the same access to employment opportunities. Uh, we might talk about the shortage of STEM qualified and conf STEM confident teachers. Um, we may talk about the shrinking pipeline of STEM qualified graduates for industry, the importance of supporting innovation and a knowledge-based economy, uh, solving the global challenges around food and water security, climate change and human mobility. Uh, or we might talk about the challenge of scientific literacy for healthy and thriving communities and informed leadership. Uh, which was starkly illustrated most recently by the mixed social response to pandemic health measures and vaccination rollout. So with all of these different elements, the selection gives you um, themes in social justice, um, corporate interests, environmental interests, community and health content, um, which gives you a variety of different angles to approach different stakeholders within your perspective donor pool. If we're going to look at the example of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bursaries, um, we would be looking at the lack of access to educational opportunities and role models um, being a contributing factor in a huge number of negative life outcomes for First Nations people. So being able to flesh out that bigger picture beyond the scope of your institution uh, helps engage your prospective donors in a much more meaningful way because you're inviting them to help you uh, really solve a big, big challenge. Okay, so the third uh, section is the solution. Oops. So the solution section is where you're going to reveal your plan for solving the big problem. And again, this is an area where institutions often don't have enough information to satisfy a donor, and it can point to critical holes in your strategic plan that need to be addressed. While it's emotional impact that initially moves people to give, they don't suddenly switch off their uh, critical thinking. They want to see that you have a sound and plausible plan that will actually deliver on what you're promising. Accountability and trust are two of the most significant factors in securing and retaining donor loyalty. All of your donors, from smallest to largest, want to feel assured that their donation is going to be well used and make a tangible difference. 
So what donors will typically want to know about your plan, uh, they will want to be able to see methodology and execution. They will want to be able to see the, the potential level of impact that their gifts are going to have. They'll want to see timeframes, um, partnerships, how are you working collaboratively with other agencies and organisations to help solve your problem in a meaningful way, um, and also monitoring and measuring the outcomes. How will you be able to see if the impact has actually been achieved that you're promising? Uh, again, thinking through these elements, your case can be an excellent catalyst for much more strategic thinking within your institution, which is critically important before you have your first conversation with the donor. Super important point uh, also is that you must be absolutely sure that what you're presenting as the plan is actually what your institution is committed to following through. So sometimes between the problem and solution, institutions actually forget to quantify the gap. Uh, but without the gap and without the aspirational targets, there's no sense of urgency or impact. Um, an example of this is uh, a university client I worked with that had a STEM summer camp for high school girls, um, which could only take 30 students per year, but they hadn't actually quantified for their prospective donors what the gap was that they were seeking to fill. And it turned out they were actually getting 600 applications from girls across Australia to participate in that. Um, that piece of information had a much bigger impact on one of their female major donors than simply telling her that they needed more spaces. Uh, when you do a good job of monitoring and measuring your results over time, it puts you also in a much stronger position to be able to ask again when the time comes, because you can clearly quantify in advance the impact that your donors will have. Okay, so the, um, the fourth section is uh, the why us section. This is establishing your credibility and demonstrating your um, track record for being able to deliver on the plan and as a trustworthy destination for philanthropic funding. And in this section, you'll be wanting to provide a brief history of your institution, um, its past track record for delivering results, the characteristics and qualities that ideally position your institution to be able to deliver on the plan, um, and the unique characteristics that distinguish your institution and in being able to deliver on the plan. Uh, also the characteristics that make your institution an ideal collaborative partner for organisations that, that are also helping to work on this problem. Uh, if you're fundraising for research, you may also want to include brief bios of your project leadership team, uh, which is especially relevant where expertise and reputation adds to the credibility for solving the problem. So with this, it's a good idea to brainstorm every list, uh, every possible strength that could be included in this list uh, and then use your best selection. Uh, also in this section, you want to pay particular attention to emphasising your institutional uh, mission and values uh, because value alignment is very important for donors. So this is an example, um, just one point from a case for a residential college uh, where they say family is the word that both our residents and staff use to describe our community. Every student is known and supported. While our staff may come for the job, they stay for the passionate commitment to ensuring these young people have the best possible start in their grown up lives and careers. 
Okay, so section number five is why now? And this is where you're communicating the sense of urgency uh, in your case, which is absolutely essential for your to inspire your donors to actually take action. Without urgency, your prospective donors won't be motivated. Um, and this quote from Andrew Crofts succinctly sums up this universe, universal truth that there must be a sense of urgency before anything can ever happen. So in communicating urgency, um, you want to think about, um, sorry, in the context of this of the storyline, this is also the key moment, obviously, in the narrative arc where you're increasing the level of tension, reminding the reader that the stakes are high and that there is a very real risk that must be averted uh, uh, in the problem that you're seeking to solve. So these are the questions that you will need to answer in this section. Why do you need their support right now? Why is their involvement time critical? Uh, what will happen if you don't get the funding that you need? Raising the stakes like this leads naturally and comfortably into the next section of your case for support, where you tell the reader exactly how they can relieve this tension by making a philanthropic investment and create the happy ending that everybody wants. Okay, so in the investment needed section, this is where you get down to brass tacks on just how much money is needed. Uh, and it's another area where institutions tend to be a bit vague and not offer donors enough information, sometimes because they simply haven't done all of the necessary strategic thinking um, or because they are uncomfortable about being uh, that explicit. But the more explicit that you can be in this section, the better. Uh, not just about the overall amount you are seeking, but a breakdown of different components that help meet your objectives. Uh, donor, donors want to invest at the level that suits their comfort, and your case could present project elements at different gift bars to give them a sense of scale. If you are vague in how much you need and for what, it also undermines undermine the plan that you've already so carefully presented. Um, simply saying, we need money for bursaries and scholarships. Um, it doesn't set any kind of benchmark for what you are seeking or how you plan to solve the problem. So donors want to know how much, uh, how many, and for how long. And here's just a summary of some of the points that you would cover. Um, depending on the nature of your priority funding needs, your details should include the per year investment needed, the overall investment needed for the duration of the project, uh, and if an appropriate solution, how much it would take to fund each of those projects um, in perpetuity through an endowment. So it gives them the opportunity to solve the whole problem if they have the capacity to do that. If your project is a new building, then you would identify different parts of the building available for naming rights at different levels of investment. Um, and present this information in a table format so that it's really, it's very easy to read and digest. Okay, session seven, benefits to the donor. Um, benefits to the donor is all about the happy ending and transformational change the donor hero is going to bring about. Uh, this is where you present the vision for an exciting future in which the solution is achieved that they will create through their philanthropic investment and support. This doesn't need to be a particularly long section, uh, it might only be a couple of paragraphs, but it does need to be highly aspirational while continuing to convey a sense of urgency to bring this amazing vision about. Uh, make sure that you use the personal pronouns you and your to make it very clear that the reader is the, is the, is the hero in this aspirational vision of the future.
And then with your conclusion, this is just the final part of any wrapping up that you want to do, uh, a final call to action, details on tax deductibility of donor gifts, and very importantly, contact details for those who would like more information or who want to make a gift. So looking at your sources of content for your case for support, uh, when writing for your own institution, you will almost certainly suffer from the curse of too much knowledge uh, and from being too close to the subject. And this can make you blind to the power of the institution's story. So to overcome this, you need to make every effort to approach your case as though you're seeing through fresh eyes to rediscover the wonder uh, and not overlook important information. Conducting interviews with key informants will help overcome this. This includes interviewing your leadership um, and the staff who are directly connected with the projects um, and programs who are able to provide you with more detailed information about those programs. Um, also, very importantly, the individuals who are actually at the point of impact uh, of your projects and programs. So that would be your students, um, your alumni, and um, maybe your parents. The, um, the powerful personal stories that you gather from students, alumni and parents um, contribute to the sense of narrative. Uh, they deliver a much stronger emotional punch in the content of your case. Um, they give credibility and authenticity to your cause and they will communicate far more articulately um, the impact of your institution than you will ever be able to do. These can be used as this content that you that you gather through interviews with um, with students, alumni, and parents can be used as quotes, testimonials, and case studies um, throughout your case for support. But they can also be included um, in your appeal letters and as standalone content for your website and social media campaigns to support appeals. So here's a couple of examples um, from the Flinders University appeal. Um, these two. Um, Haydar Jones is a, is a relatively recent graduate and Chula Murray is a current uh, medical student. Both of these uh, uh, people have amazing stories that help um, very powerfully tell the, um, the transformational, uh, the ability for, for scholarships to transform people's lives and really make an amazing difference. Um, these profiles were included in short form in the, letter, the appeal letter that was sent out, but they were also um, shared in long form on the website uh, and through social media, the social media platforms. Um, here's also some extracts from um, an interview with the parent of an Aboriginal boarding student. Uh, and uh, so she said, Dad, I want to give something back to Burke. I've got a chance here. I'm going to give something back to my town. I can show the kids who are born and bred out here that there is a career path for them. They arrived down there in year seven as little frightened bush girls, and there were some tough times but they, that they had to go through. The pressures of study, I've been away from home, but they always had a shoulder to lean on. The support at the school is just second to none. Now they say they wouldn't have wanted to go anywhere else because of the support the school has given them. So this kind of content um, will, will tell in a much more um, powerful and meaningful way uh, the impact that um, the school is achieving through its Aboriginal program um, than simply having a member of the staff describing what the program is um, and, and using that for the content. 
Other types of personalised content that you could include, um, you could include thank you letters and emails received from students, alumni or parents. Um, you could also use feedback from focus groups or surveys. Um, this information can be anonymised or you could seek permission of the individuals to use it. So for one appeal I worked on last year, we wanted a much clearer picture of uh, how the um, lockdowns had impacted students, university students in the course of in the course of 2020. So we actually created a survey specifically to gather evidence to use in the appeal um, from students who had received donor supported scholarships earlier in the year. We let them know what this information would be used for and they were very happy to participate because they knew that it would help raise more money. Uh, in terms of um, your external supporting evidence that will help build your case, particularly for the problem section and the why now sections, there are many helpful web-based resources that you can use. I regularly go to um, government reports, the Australian uh, Bureau of Statistics, the Foundation for Young Australians, um, and the Mission Australia Youth Survey. Um, Google is terrific because you can bring up such a lot of content relating to whatever topic you need to um, uh, you, you are raising money for. Um, and there will also likely be a host of articles if your identified problem is particularly topical. Um, to find these, I use Google Alerts for keywords um, such as STEM because I write quite a few cases on STEM. Um, and, uh, and I save these articles for later use um, so that I've got the most up-to-date information ready when I need to use it. Okay, so in respect of writing an emotive, the importance of writing an emotive case, um, your empathy is your greatest tool. To write a good case, you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of both the beneficiaries you are raising money for and your prospective donors. Um, this will hopefully help you tap into the more warm, emotional and aspirational language that you will need to capture both the heart and imagination of your prospective donors. Um, this is very important because it's not necessarily an intuitive space for us to write from. Um, we're usually much more accustomed to uh, engage a formal writing tone, particularly when we're writing for the organisation that we work for. Um, and for this reason, it's almost certain that you will also get pushback internally. Um, your marketing and communications people uh, are not necessarily going to be familiar with or comfortable with the style of writing, uh, unless they've specifically trained up on writing for fundraising. Um, and you may need to work to persuade them to write in the style. Um, your principal or vice chancellor may also be much less comfortable with the warmer language and putting their name to it. Um, and sometimes we find that institutions can be uh, a bit uncomfortable about actually putting a powerful stake in the ground uh, for who they are, what they do and what they want to achieve. Um, it's a bit like writing your own CV or your own LinkedIn bio uh, and there's an inclination to tone things down. Um, but your number one priority as a fundraiser is to evoke a, a powerful emotional response from your prospective donors so that they see both the need and urgency and then take action. Um, so you need to guard against the dilution of your critical fundraising language. Okay, so now I am going to hand over to Dana um, to talk in detail about her, her annual appeal case study. Hello everyone, and thank you Chanel for your um, amazing presentation. Um, it was um, fascinating to hear all the different stories and the points. 
Um, I would like to share with everyone um, our um, annual appeal that uh, we conducted in 2019. And I was very fortunate to actually work with Chanel and with Nick Jeffer from Global Philanthropic uh, who assisted us with the basically writing the case of support, which was essential, I think, to its success, um, which I'll now share with you what we actually went through in terms of what objectives we stated, what was the starting point, what objectives and strategy we created, what communication channels we used, how we created the case of support, and what was the actual outcome. So let me share the screen with everyone. Anna, can you just wave at me whether you can see the screen? Yes, thank you. <laughs> All good. So um, in terms of what I would like to talk about is the, the objectives, the starting point, the structure, the channels, and the outcome. So let's dive in into the objectives. So we had, I think, three main objectives, which was obviously to raise funds, to grant one means-tested scholarship, which would be named after Dr. Lennox, who was at the time the principal at Redlands, and it was his final year, and he was retiring um, after so many years of um, working in education. Prior to Redlands, he was also principal at Brisbane Grammar, and before that he worked in, uh, in Canberra Grammar School. So his basically life journey was education and his dedication um, to um, educating young students um, was incredible. And the board wanted to award his um, and acknowledge his legacy by naming a scholarship after him. The other objective that we had was to build awareness in our community of means-tested scholarships versus the other scholarships that were run, funded from the school income. Because um, the, in the past, the bit of a challenge that we were facing was that people were not willing to contribute to the scholarship fund because they thought, well, they didn't really see the impact. So really the building the awareness and the need and the urgency why the school actually needs contributions towards means-tested scholarships, which um, actually Dr. Lennox started in uh, 2010 by establishing uh, a scholarship trust that was um, basically dedicated to uh, start the journey of granting means-tested scholarships at Redlands and uh, increase diversity among our student body. And the third but not least was to increase participation in, in our annual giving, um, and especially in the scholarship um, appeal because uh, in the past the focus was on the um, capital campaigns and really to make a shift uh, wasn't uh, as easy so they really the challenge was to um, uh, to focus on the participation and also not just focus on parents but on our alumni so the starting point was um, fairly um, challenging because we didn't have a history of scholarship appeals as such. Um, there was one appeal back in uh, 2010 when actually the, the trust was started, but uh, after that the major focus of the school was on the capital campaign because we had a, a major building project here which just opened last year. The annual giving as such wasn't recognized in our community. Um, we had sort of an ad hoc um, call outs for, um, for various uh, contributions. Uh, we had limited, limited postal mail-outs, primarily electronic communication. As we know, they, the postal mail-outs are critical for people to actually remember the cause and have something tangible to refer to. Um, we were using just the school um, 
system, which didn't have any CRM functionality in place, um, no EDMs. Uh, we were manually tracking our campaigns and um, didn't really have uh, social media reinforcement for appeals. So that was um, our starting point and really working with Chanel and Nick, uh, we created quite a, a comprehensive plan, which um, I think part of that was really creating the sense of urgency, what Chanel talked about and the situation in terms of who we actually need to um, involve in the whole appeal. It wasn't just the foundation and foundation committee, but also the whole board, the principal, uh, who at the time was Dr. Lennox, the whole executive, and we had obviously the community that um, was um, um, was incredibly supportive uh, once we actually launched the appeal. So the case of support as such was um, very, um, I would say, built around um, Dr. Lennox's legacy and his um, impact on education and his uh, incredible um, dedication to um, uh, Redlands and also um, the, I would say, the impact that scholarships have on uh, students. We had uh, we had a lot of interviews with our alumni who were scholarship um, holders, and uh, we used those testimonials on our website. We used them in the appeal. We also um, interviewed staff in terms of how they see the contributions of, uh, of Dr. Lennox and his impact on education. So that's always kind of very important to actually create that case of support that was then articulated um, uh, throughout the year in various communication platforms, which I will talk talk through in a minute. Uh, we also were tailoring the communication to our uh, segments. Obviously, uh, parents um, are very interested in um, the impact on the on the students as such, uh, but the alumni, there was kind of that emotional connection in terms of what um, uh, experiences they had uh, at Redlands and um, how successful some of our alumni are. So our staff, the members of the, uh, of the company and also sponsors, they, they were our um, big part, uh, especially in events, our sponsors contributed quite a lot um, for our Gala Bowl. We involved the year 12 students, our um, annual programs is also the legacy gift of um, year 12. So at that time, the year 12 students um, uh, thoroughly contributed towards the uh, the scholarship fund. So they, they played a very big part um, in terms of building the whole awareness and momentum on campus. Uh, we had a comprehensive collateral created, the EDMs, video, website. Um, the video had a lot of the messaging that we collected through some of the interviews. Um, we had some historical facts. Um, we had a lot of information about the background of Dr. Lennox, that he was actually uh, scored twice, once in uh, uh, Sydney Grammar and once in Oxford. So also he was a big uh, advocate and endorser of the course. We had key events scheduled and the appeal team identified, which was a, um, basically a, a combination of um, our executive, our deputy principal was very involved in, in this appeal, uh, volunteers, our staff and the foundation advisory committee, which is primarily um, our consists of our major donors. So our uh, communication channels were um, across um, different platforms. Uh, basically the launch, we had a, a, a banner, which uh, you can see at the right top corner, Peter Lennox Scholarship, uh, Let Your Light Shine on Education, which basically comes from our motto. The school motto is Let Your Light Shine, which everyone knows, all our community, alumni, parents, students. So we kind of use that as a, uh, as a sense of pride. 
uh, and we launched the appeal with the Foundation Alumni Newsletters, uh, what you can see on the um, at the corner as well, with the image that was then used also in EDMs and um, and our website, so to kind of create that consistency of the images. Uh, we had um, um, events organized uh, throughout the year, started the appeal with the Foundation Soiree, which was hosted by our major donors in their house, and where we actually received um, a check of $150,000 from one of our um, donors, who actually uh, a grandfather at the school. So that kind of started the whole journey and the, the, the whole um, um, excitement about this appeal. Then we had the Platinum Girls Luncheon, which is um, uh, consists of our old girls uh, who um, in the past um, um, have not really majorly, uh, they're not major contributors, but that also created quite a, a great um, sense of belonging. And they started actually making contributions towards uh, this um, appeal. And last but not least, our major event is the Redlands Gala Ball, which um, culminated the whole appeal in August. So basically after the end of financial year. And um, that was sort of the, the finale of the appeal when we had 600 guests, which uh, this year will be hard to do. But um, uh, had our alumni performers. Uh, we had our alumni um, scholarship, scholarship fund uh, scholarship holders there who actually uh, reinforced the whole um, cause of the need for the scholarship and and showcased what they do with their lives at the moment. So they're kind of building that pride and um, and momentum and the spirit among the community uh, was fantastic. We had um, raffle auctions uh, and tax deductible donations all at the ball. Uh, because our communities probably wouldn't be, um, is, is very used to um, contribute in many different ways. We had our alumni volunteers there who were selling raffle tickets, helping with auctions. So that was uh, created really great spirit. Um, and uh, we were very happy with the results. This is an example of the year 12 um, uh, legacy gift um, initiative, which we started in 2016, but in 2019, the, the students raised funds primarily towards the, the scholarship. What you can see there is they had a number of initiatives, the movie night for year seven students, they had a uh, crazy beard and hair, and they had a basketball game. So they all together actually raised um, $10,000, but what was really more important was they that we used um, their initiatives and the communication um, in our communication to uh, alumni and parents uh, with the slogan, um, join us, uh, join the year 12 students in our journey towards uh, raising uh, necessary funds for, this, for the means tested scholarships. So the, uh, the results with, um, which we achieved were, um, we're very happy with. So we were hoping to raise 700,000 plus, which we then raised um, 750, 620 from donations and 130,000 from events um, net after the cost, which was primarily the, um, the funds raised from the Gala Ball. Um, 243 donors participated, which um, we are very happy with because in the past we had something like 100 donors um, contributing towards the scholarship. So this uh, uh, very much um, exceeded the, um, the expectations, uh, built the awareness of the means-tested scholarship. So now I think everyone knows um, what that means and what it stands for. What's really important is to focus on your major donors because they really contribute a high value in our situation. They contributed 75% um, to all the funds. So, uh, but the, the really important thing is that these people typically 
contribute or step up when they see the whole community uh, being behind the course. So in um, uh, towards the um, towards the end in um, 2018, actually, when we had the the candidate selected, we had an uh, announcement with our current uh, principal Stephen Weber, who is on the right hand side, with the with, the, with Dr. Lennox, who, who stands on the left hand side, and um, made announcement in terms of who is the holder or who is the scholarship holder and uh, how important that is for that recipient because it's someone who actually comes from regions wouldn't be able to come. Uh, to Redlands at all, uh, comes from a family of a nurse and a policeman and is currently an amazing student and contributes a lot to, um, to our community. So that's pretty much um, it from uh, my side and thank you so much for, um, for listening. Thanks so much, Dana and Chanel. Um, there is a question here for you, Dana, about what CRM system did you end up using? Um, we actually had, at the time, we didn't have a CRM system. We had an Edumate, which is uh, a school information system and really had to do manual uh, reporting, manual meaning like we just draw the reports and work with them in Excel. But at the moment, we actually were very lucky and were able to secure Razor's Edge, which we've been using now for the second year. And it really allows us to uh, communicate with our um, community much more effectively. Like last year, I think without Razor's Edge, we wouldn't be able to conduct such an effective communication um, with Edumate because uh, Razor's Edge really allows you to segment and allows you to very easily put um, EDMs through. You can see the click-through rates, you can see response rates. So it really, um, I think, made our life um, easier. I'm very, very fortunate to have um, that system at the moment. Great. I had a question for you in terms of the Peter Lennox scholarship. How many communications did you think you sent out to your, your community around that? Like, can you give us an um, idea? Yeah, I think we probably had uh, about uh, four, I would say, major mail-outs, which would be tailored to parents and alumni with different type of messaging. Mm -hmm. But in between, we just had a basically weekly communication to our community through weekly newsletter about the gala ball. There was a lot of momentum built around the gala ball about the prizes. We had an auction launched. Uh, we had the um, early bird um, uh, communication. We had the the prizes for those who actually made a first bid by a certain time. So there was just uh, that was for parents. There was a weekly communication to actually uh, build that momentum. But I would say to our major um, uh, communication lines were probably four times, twice in the um, term two, which is the, the, the you know the, um, the end of financial year, and then we had prior the ball and post the ball. That was all in 2019, but we continued in 2020 with the communication about um, the Peter Lennox Scholarship um, advertising is on. Uh, the Peter Lennox Scholarship um, candidate applications have closed down. Um, the um, Peter Lennox Scholarship uh, has been awarded. So it really gave us a lot of um, other content that we could use last year primarily to continue um, with that communication, which really broke a lot of additional donations, which probably we wouldn't have made last year uh, due to COVID. Yeah, wonderful. Great. Thank you. Um, Chanel, I had a question. Just in terms of your case for, case for support, how do you usually recommend that people present it? Um, is it in a document? Is it a brochure? Is it an online, you know, kind of downloadable thing? And how long is it usually? 
So, so, the, so the, the full case for support for all of the content um, from every different angle, that's, that's not a document that you would ever put in front of anybody to read from beginning to end. Um, that's, a, that's a resource that you keep um, internally, but you know, share with, uh, with your colleagues. Um, so then you, you would uh, typically, um, the full version of that is like 30 to 40 pages by the time you fill out all of those different sections. Um, and then from that, you would generate, uh, you might generate like a brochure that's targeted at a specific audience on a specific um, uh, project area. So for example, a case for support um, that we did a couple of years ago for a residential college, uh, they then wanted to launch a scholarship fund for Aboriginal students. So they pulled out all of the content from that case that so they could then focus specifically on uh, on that project and and for people who would be interested in supporting that. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So you've got the big kind of internal document with all the detail and then for whatever specific appeal or group that you're approaching, you're going to pull it out from that and create something that, that suits them. So, yeah. yeah. And that, that college is currently uh, running a series of events at the moment and they're also they're pulling content from that case for um, speech notes uh, and and for creating another um, appeal uh, a capital appeal um, so so they're, they're they're already using it in multiple ways very effectively hmm. great there's another question in the chat box around and this might be for anyone to answer does anyone have a good recommendation for a phone bank service or a way to set one up using existing staff at your school not actually 100 sure what that means somebody else might is this around giving days Karina are you online yes around giving days she says yes so a phone bank service yeah, so there, so there are two main services in in Australia at the moment that are offering or uh, that are you know creating support for Giving Days, which is Charity and My Cause, uh, and so um, both of them offer or they offer slightly different services, um, and so it'd be worth talking to both of them um, about what kind of work they do and um, and what what support they provide for setting up a phone bank service. Okay, does that answer your question, Karina? See if she replies. Yes, great. Thank you. Thank you, Chanel. Um, another question for Dana. In terms of that scholarship, was it open to existing students too or just new students? Um, the means tested scholarships are open just to new students. They cover a tuition from year seven uh, through start to year 12. Uh, last year, we actually had some bursaries to existing students, but they um, are kind of treated separately. So the, 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 the Redlands Foundation scholarships, which Peter Lennox scholarship is under that umbrella, they are only for no students. Hmm. Great. All right. Chanel, did you have any questions there from the ones that were sent through that you wanted to cover off? Yeah, so one of the questions that came through was how often should the ask be made? Um, and uh, minimum, you want to make you want to make two hard asks, at least two hard asks a year. So your, your mid-year tax appeal and your end-of-year Christmas appeal. Um, uh, 
even though tax deductibility isn't a high incentive for people to actually make a donation, the fact that you've that you've got that date as a driver for, for spurring action is a big motivator. Um, and it also gives you a justification for sending one week and 24 hour reminders coming up to the 30th of June. So people people won't be offended by that if you send them an email reminder. Um, and then on top of that, you may have special appeals. So for example, last year, uh, a lot of universities ran special appeals um, at the in March and April to support students that were suffering in the, in the pandemic lockdown. Um, and one of the universities that we were working with, um, they raised 25% of their revenue from the, um, from the special appeal in April. They raised 70% of their um, uh, revenue from the mid-year appeal. And then they only, they raised 4% of, um, of appeal revenue uh, with the Christmas ask, but they actually had 114 donors um, at that period as well. So even though the gift amount wasn't high, uh, they had a good participation rate from donors. So the, the main KPI that you're always wanting to push or drive with your appeal is participation. It's not the it's not the uh, overall return on investment um, because you're wanting to build your donor pipeline um, by getting people participating regularly. Yeah. Um, would you mind if I come in on that uh, question of how many appeals? Uh, I suggest the more appeals, the better. The Democratic Party in the US has forty-eight appeals a year. Um, I don't expect you to ever think about that, but what I suggest is that whatever you've done last year, you do one more this year. So if you did three last year, you do four this year and gradually over time build it up. I've proved absolutely more appeals raise more money. Yes, they may take a little bit from a previous appeal. In other words, if you have a, an appeal in September, and one following in October. The October one may not be as great, but overall you'll raise a lot more money. That, that is true. The only thing that you need to balance that with your alumni in particular, you need to make sure that you're also sending them a lot of other non-fundraising related engagement materials um, because otherwise you'll get the complaint my university only ever asked, well, my school only ever asked me for money. So, um, so if you're going to send them lots of appeals, make sure you're also sending them lots of other just purely engagement material. And a rule of thumb that I have um, for sending out a first time, uh, like if you're send, sending an appeal to alumni for the first time, you want to make sure that they've received at least three other non-fundraising communications before you send them an appeal. Um, so that that's not the first thing that they get. Yeah, that's that's a great rule of thumb uh, piece of advice, Chanel. Um, I think given the time, we might have to wrap up. So I just wanted to really quickly thank Chanel and Dana for sharing their insights today and also for everybody else for jumping on and um, being part of this Educate Plus SIG. Uh, we're really lucky to have Educate Plus um, help us organise these things. I just wanted to shout out to Jackie Dalton for helping us organise this. And then, of course, Sona and Sheila um, at Educate Plus who do all the background behind the scenes work as well. Um, I think that's everyone to thank, but um, hopefully we'll see you again soon. There's a major gifts um, fundraising SIG that we're planning later in June. So if you've got anything that you particularly want to hear about with that one, um, let Dana, Jackie or myself know. Thanks.
Thanks, Hannah. Thank you, everyone.